Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter. Since we now know that we are going to get a redacted version of the Mueller report on Thursday, we wanted to give you a reader's guide. Joe and I are thrilled to be joined today by Matthew Miller. Matthew has worked at the highest levels of government and politics, including service at the Department of Justice as the director of the Office of Public Affairs, leading the department's communications team and serving as Attorney General Eric Holder's spokesman. Prior to his service at DOJ, Matthew worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate, as well as the 2004 presidential campaign for then-Senator John Kerry. He is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, an MSNBC contributor, and has written for The Washington Post, Time Magazine, Politico, and others. We'll talk about Barr and the Mueller report and and everything related to the Russia investigation in a minute. But before we dive into that, we want to talk about your time at the Department of Justice. And you've worked in, in politics and government throughout your career, but your tenure at DOJ was not like that of most of the political appointees. And so tell us about your, your work there and, and what that job was. So I showed up at the Department of Justice. Actually, I showed up uh, on the confirmation team for Eric Holder before that we took office, obviously. Uh, not knowing really anything about DOJ or how it works or I couldn't have told you what a U.S. attorney's responsibility was. And, you know, it's a common thing for a press person. You have a high learning curve where you have to learn a great deal about a certain area of the government or certain policy and then explain it to the public. And it was a an extraordinary – well, I say it's an extraordinarily difficult time. It looked pretty calm compared to what DOJ has been like the, the last two years. But – if you think about the Bush administration, the you know the entire Bush government had been based on a set of policies, national security policies around Al Qaeda and the Iraq War, all of which we were reversing early on. So you had the Guantanamo issues and the prosecutions of the 9/11 defendants and torture and all of these things that were extremely controversial that ended up being much more difficult and complicated to deal with than, than we expected. That took up the, really the first two years we were there. It sounds like fun times, but, yeah, but much calmer uh, than that. And like I said, it all seemed very hot and controversial and now looks completely minor and trivial compared to what DOJ has been going through the last two years. So, Matt, you've been pretty vocal on the history and the integrity and the independence of DOJ and what's transpired. Talk a little bit about that, about how it's become, in your in your view, a political arm. Yeah, that's the thing that's been hardest to watch because it's hard to overstate how ingrained it is in the culture of DOJ that the the institution is just completely independent from the White House. You don't talk to the White House about any criminal investigations, let alone an investigation into someone close to the president, let alone an investigation into the president himself. And the White House pretty much knows not to talk to you about that. Uh, there are kind of you know, channels set up to, for, for those communications when they're necessary. But it's just this uh, – th- there's this culture in, in, in both buildings that you don't coordinate on these things. And the president from day one just started trying to trample on that culture. I mean really it was from the, the very beginning trying to cultivate Jim Comey. He talks about it you know, in his book and his t- testimony and trying to you know, get the, the then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to just be his stooge and, and treat the Justice Department like it ought to prosecute his opponents and let his allies go. 
And the thing that's been discouraging for me is, look, the, the culture has held for the most part at DOJ, but it's frayed around the edges in ways that I think are, are, are very damaging. You know, the fact that the inspector general has, is conducting this investigation into, how the, into the FISA applications, despite the fact – into Carter Page, despite the fact there's no evidence of wrongdoing at all, that they're looking into this claim that Trump was spied on by this London professor that the FBI used an informant, despite the fact there's no credible evidence at all. They've done all these things – that weaken the department's independence when they should have said, no, no, Mr. President, we're not going to do that. That's not appropriate. What they've done, whether they intended it or not, and I think it is what they intended, was to provide fuel for the conspiracy theories of the far right. And even if it never comes to something, it keeps that conversation going. It keeps the Trump base, you know, frothing at the at the mouth on, on these things. It's absolutely right. And I think, you know, Sessions, I think, wanted to encourage some of those conspiracy theories. Rod Rosenstein, I think, had a different calculation. He was always, I, I, I suspect, just thinking if I could give Trump just a little bit, I'll give him this IG investigation. Uh, I'll talk to him a little bit about the investigation into his campaign, which he's done a few times. He briefed the president on completely inappropriate. If I just do this, it'll hold him off from firing me, from firing Mueller, from you know throwing the whole department into controversy. But every time you give him a little bit – it gives Fox News a talking point. And, and I think it's even worse now that you don't even have kind of the department reluctantly endorsing some of these theories. You have the new attorney general coming right out and saying that the Trump campaign was spying on and just using the president's language and using the Fox News language. It's extraordinarily damaging for the department. And the, the career people that work there have just been apoplectic for the last couple of years. So before we uh, get into how you're going to read the report and how we should read the report, let me ask you about – you mentioned a couple of people – Give us a grade for the players here, for Sessions, Rosenstein, Comey, uh, Whitaker, and maybe Don McGann, you know, as, as another player. Yeah. Sessions, so the thing that everyone that knows DOJ, reporters that cover it, people that work there know that you can't really talk about in polite companies, certainly can't talk about in the errors. Sessions was not smart enough to be attorney general, just didn't have the intellectual capacity to be AG. It's kind of a, a rough thing to say, but, it, but it's true. And not only that, but was so wanted to ingratiate himself with the president that he let himself be pushed around. I think Sessions early on when Trump was pushing him could have had an entirely different tenure as AG if he just would have said publicly, you know what, I don't care what the president thinks. I'm going to be independent. I'm going to do what I think is right and not try to go in between and be loyal to the president but still lead the department. It, it, it was an impossible place. I think he was a complete failure as attorney general. Rod, I think, is weaker than more people suspect uh, or more people know. You can see that with the Comey memo that he wrote. He knew – he had to know what he was, what he was doing there. Um, I think the words he wrote were justified, but he knew how that memo was going to be used and he should had a, a, a bigger obligation to protect DOJ. And I think at other times has been weaker when we needed him to, to be strong. That said, you know, he did appoint Mueller and I think his, his motives were mixed. I think he was trying to repair his own reputation that he had damaged really with the Comey firing. So I think Rod probably comes off better than any of them, but still very, very mixed. Whitaker was just a hack and a stooge. I mean, he's no, you know, no business being attorney general and will never have a job like that again in his life, I assume. And then Barr, Barr has just been a... Com 
I, I say a disappointment from my perspective. I think he has been exactly the AG the president wanted. Is it an overstatement to say he's his Roy Cohn? That might be an overstatement, but I, I think, look, the word that you never want to use about someone at DOJ is a hack, right? You don't, want, you don't want to be called a hack. You're there to follow the law and you have an obligation to follow the law. And it is an oversimplification to say that Barr is a hack, very smart lawyer. But look, he wrote this memo saying the president basically couldn't obstruct justice. Uh, it wouldn't be a crime if he did all these things that he's admitted to do and, and attacking the investigation. He gets picked after he writes that memo. It's obvious why the president picked him. It doesn't mean that he's going to make decisions that favor the president, but the president certainly thought he would. And then despite that, he doesn't recuse himself. He then very clearly puts his thumb on the scale when he releases uh, the principal conclusions and makes his own determination on obstruction. And then you know, I think the final straw for me was this spying comment where it's pretty clear. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it's clear he's been watching too much Fox News. He's made a few comments, you know, that saying that the Uranium One thing had more right to be investigated than the Russia hacking of the, of the elections. What? You know, it, 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 you can be a smart, sophisticated person and still have your brain rot a little bit by wa- watching too much of that, I think. And, and that's happened to him. I, he's been disappointing and I'm, I'm worried. It's overstatement to say a, a complete hack, but, you know, a much smarter version of, of a Matt Whitaker. All right. So let's talk about the report itself. And we now know that it, it will come out on Thursday morning. What is the first thing that you are going to do and what are you looking for right off the bat Thursday morning? So I have some general things I want to see and some specific things. Generally, I want to see what the other acts of obstruction that Mueller investigated that we don't know about yet are. There's a reference in Barr's letter to most of the acts are already publicly known. (laughs) Well, that's great. It means some of them aren't. (laughs) And I want to see, I really want to see what those are. And that's true about all the obstruction area because I think with, you know, there's two pieces of the report, the conspiracy collusion piece and the obstruction piece. The obstruction, I think, will all be about the president's behavior. The conspiracy collusion may be some behavior by him and others around, mostly others around him. The obstruction is all him. And I want to see all of that. I'm very curious about all of that. But then I have some really specific questions. You know, when Mike Flynn talked to the Russian ambassador about sanctions, was he doing that on someone's direction? After he had the conversation, did the president-elect know about that? We've never gotten the answer to that question. It's a really weird thing for him to have done on his own and then lied about to the FBI. Who is the senior campaign official that was directed to talk to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks and what they had coming? Was he directed by the president? It seems he was directed by Trump, just in the weird way they wrote it in the Stone indictment. But we don't know yet. And there's some other specific factual things like that that are just big glaring puzzle pieces that that I want to see filled in. I mean, how likely are you to get these questions answered? Talk about uh, redactions, the categories. And I mean, Barr did say the president's reputation is not per se a uh, reason for redaction. But it's, it you know, feels to me like he's done everything so far to protect the president's reputation. I 100 percent believe all of those questions are answered in the report. But that's a, I think it's a different question that you're yes. asking, yes. <laughs> which is what will Barr let us see? All those questions I just went through shouldn't relate to classified information. Um, so they shouldn't be redacted uh, for that reason. They shouldn't relate to ongoing investigations. I can't think of anything that I just mentioned that relates to an ongoing investigation. They shouldn't be redacted for that reason. I don't think they relate to grand jury material. All of the obstruction of justice piece of the investigation, I don't think the the Mueller team used the grand jury for any of that because the president turned over documents willingly and made people available for interviews willingly. So 
none of that should be redacted. So if we don't see the answers to that, it's because Barr has really, really perverted the process in some way. And and before we just, you know, blow past the criminal conspiracy and collusion, as it's been called, it is highly likely, it strikes me, that there's a lot of pieces of information that may not have reached the point of a criminal indictment or wouldn't be fruitful because you can't indict uh, the president. And maybe it doesn't touch the president. But there's a lot of stuff that happened that shouldn't have happened. We've done a bunch of campaigns. And I can tell you, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, that if any foreign government ever contacted me with any kind of information, it's, you know, people say, my first call would be the FBI. It wouldn't be. My first call would be go down to the general counsel of the campaign and say, what the hell do I do with this? It just seems to me we've glossed over this whole episode as in it didn't happen. Are we going to see any of that? Do you think we're going to get some meat for the narrative there? I, I would hope so. Look, uh, another specific question that relates to that. When Donald Trump Jr. had that meeting at Trump Tower, when, he was, when, he, when the meeting was set up, did he talk to his dad about it? They've said no publicly that his dad never knew. I've always found that very hard to believe. But if this were a typical declination memo inside the Department of Justice, what you would expect to see is they had this meeting. Donald Trump Jr. said that he didn't tell his father. Uh, we don't know whether Donald Jr. said that to them because we've never been able to find out whether he went to the grand jury or had an interview. But then you would see evidence like, however, on this date, right after he had, right after he got this email, and right after he had the, the call with um, the music promoter that brought him this information, he placed two phone calls to his father. They'd have the phone records. They may not know the content, but they would have that in a declination memo. So I would think we might see that in here. And that would give us, you know, if not... A dead answer. It would give us a lot of circumstantial evidence. And I think the problem with the way people have interpreted this for a while is because this has been a criminal investigation and you see coverage of this in the news and you know, I fall into this trap all the time on TV, you could ask this question, would this behavior be a crime? And so that becomes the natural bar in a criminal investigation. Was this a crime? Well, that's not the appropriate bar for the president, whether he committed a crime or not. It's much, much lower than that. You mentioned what could or would be in a declination memo. And I want to ask about that because this report amounts to a, a decision on, to decline to prosecute a declination decision, which is not something that the department ever announces. And there are even many instances where subjects of investigation beg for that announcement. And that's not something that they do. And it and got Comey in a little bit of trouble as well doing the same thing. Did you have any experience during your time at the department uh, with something similar or dealing with this public declination issue? No, we had investigations that uh, we opened that were known publicly that we closed. So we opened an investigation into whether officials at the CIA tortured people, not tortured people in the sense of followed the guidelines that OLC had said were okay, but that we think were tortured, but had gone beyond it, beyond those guidelines. And we conducted those investigations and at the end would announce that no charges were being brought. But nothing like really, nothing like say what Comey did uh, at his press conference. There, in the Ferguson case, I was already gone then, but when, when DOJ investigated the Ferguson uh, shooting, they released a very extensive uh, examination of that afterwards. But it was different in that it didn't really pass judgment on, you know, it, it sort of outlined the evidence in the case, but it's very different than, you know, like say when Comey talked about Clinton's behavior and said it was careless, it didn't characterize the officer's behavior in that way. So there's not really a good an analogous situation. And I think, you know, with the 
the report. I actually, there's a tricky question. It kind of relates to what Comey did with Clinton. If it has a bunch of negative information about Donald Trump Jr. and says Donald Trump Jr. walked right up to the line but didn't commit a crime, there's a pretty good argument that DOJ shouldn't release that publicly because they're not charging him. It's the same argument with Clinton. You either indict or shut up. Now, they can give it to Congress, but maybe – and Congress can release it if they want. Maybe DOJ shouldn't, but it seems like they're – it seems like he at least is saying they're going to. Putting on your public affairs hat uh, as opposed to uh, legal, you know, the, the White House has – and when you say the White House, the president is the only one that really talks there or the only one that anyone listens to anymore. They, they've been a little schizophrenic on this report. You can – everyone should read it. Everyone should read it. And now they're in very much the president saying, don't believe a word of it. You know, these guys are all angry Democrats and liars and dirty cops. Uh, so just a couple of questions from that. What do you think people in DOJ and the FBI feel about being called those names uh, for one? Two, we talked, uh, you know, in an earlier uh, session about the total exoneration feeling like mission accomplished too, uh, where They've now set the bar as unless he comes out totally clean, it's a problem. You know, my cynical, jaded waking up this morning was maybe they know he comes out, they've come out clean and he's just trying to lower expectations so that he can get over those in any order you want. Yeah. So I'll take the FBI question first. So there's this weird thing where at the beginning of the administration, people at DOJ could not believe the way the president of the United States was talking about DOJ. And it, it was demoralizing and it made people angry. People are so past that now. They're so used to him doing it that it doesn't even almost register. In the same way, I think with the public, it doesn't register that what the president is doing is so abnormal. They're just kind of used to it. What has always been different, though, is the fact that the leadership at DOJ didn't stand up for them. That has always really rubbed people the wrong way, that, that Sessions and Rosenstein, when the president was attacking the workforce, wouldn't stand up for the workforce there. And and I can only imagine how Barr last week going, that, going one step further and actually joining in the attack must have just really, really been demoralizing. For contrast, there were hundreds of FBI agents assigned to the Clinton uh, case. And these were people who were combing the, the backwaters of Arkansas, getting into the most detail of the president's uh, personal life. And the president never said a word about Louis Free. The president detested Louis Free, probably even more than Ken Starr. And I will tell you, because I remember sitting in, the, sitting in a room with Mike McCurry, because we knew the question was coming, do you have confidence in Louis Free? And we were sitting around and what we finally came up with was the president believes he's doing the best job he can which was a nice passive way of saying, bless his, the heart. bless his heart, the president hates him. I never in five years at the White House talked to someone in the, in the FBI. I talked to the, the guy who had your job once or twice a year, basically on budget issues. I met with the attorney general once or twice only on, you know, on the Ilian Gonzalez case because it had so much press attention uh, and you know, coordination there. But the idea that I'd pick up the phone and call somebody or say something publicly uh, without coordinating through the White House Counsel's Office is just – I mean you just didn't even think of it. Yeah, and it's bonkers uh, yeah. and, and it's bon because it's inappropriate. I mean that's the thing. It's just – it's so inappropriate. You asked about the president's strategy. I, I've always thought that their biggest weakness in the White House is – they are never able to think beyond today's news cycle. They just can never think about where is this story going to go and I don't want to say anything today that will come back and bite me later. I guess part of that is because 
they because it like does. most people. Well, <laughs> it does well, come back it and does, bite Yeah, you. And, and because they like most people have no problem with just cha- flipping 180 degrees and saying the opposite thing tomorrow. So they don't really they don't really mind being being you know people throwing their words in their face. So I, yeah, I think that you know his exoneration thing will probably work in the same way a lot of his stuff works in that. He's just trying to harden the whatever it is, 40 percent of the, the public that he's talking to. And it's a it's a strategy that will work with him. But it's self-limiting in that when the rest of the public sees this, they go, well, he's been lying to us for a couple of weeks about this. And he has no, you know, no chance to communicate with them about it then. I wrote for CNN, you know, right after the first thing that came out that his strategy should have been standing up and saying, yes, I'm exonerated. But I take responsibility for some of the things that happened here. There were things that I shouldn't have done. Let's put this behind us and move forward as a country. But humility and Donald Trump, they have not appeared in the same sentence uh, in his lifetime anyway. So let's talk about what happens after Thursday morning. Let's talk about the process once it's out there to whatever extent we get to see what's in there without the redactions. Everyone gets it on Thursday. Everyone reads it. Then talk us through the different players here, Congress, DOJ. What, what are their next steps and what can happen next? I think the big next step for Congress is to try to solve this problem of grand jury material being withheld. And it's a it's a problem that DOJ can't solve on its own. They they Barr's right. DOJ cannot just hand over grand jury information to Congress. But DOJ can go to a judge and ask uh, the judge to to make that information available. And Congress can do it on their own. I think a judge would probably view the the request uh, more favorably if DOJ goes arm in arm with Congress. And Barr, you know, at first was really stiff arming Congress, said he wasn't inclined to do that. He then showed a little wiggle room in his second appearance last week. We'll see. I'm not confident that he's going to. So that's that's going to be the big thing for Congress to do. And there's this tricky legal issue where you have to disclose grand jury material. It has to be related to a pending inquiry. And so Congress has a stronger uh, a stronger case before a judge if an impeachment inquiry is open. It's not clear that it has to be. You could say we might open an impeachment inquiry later, but their case would be stronger. So it becomes a kind of tricky legal because there's a political dynamic to it as well. But I think that's the, the big next problem for, for Congress, specifically the House Judiciary Committee to deal with. Right. That, that tricky legal issue was dealt with by the D.C. Circuit, actually, and that's where that right. pending investigation comes from. Right. Do you think that will happen to get around this issue? You know, Nadler's going to have to just decide, I mean, and, and he probably won't be able to make this decision on his own. I mean, he, it, it's certainly going to be a decision with the speaker. I could see a case where you go to court without opening the impeachment inquiry and you try to write around it in your brief and say, in contemplation of future investigations and future inquiries and maybe a judge puts you on the spot and forces you to answer, are you beginning an impeachment inquiry yeah. or not? And yeah, I don't, he'd, I, he'd have to do it with Pelosi. I mean, Pelosi's going to make the final yeah. decision right now, and she's not going to make that decision before she reads the report. Yeah. That will have a compelling directional impact uh, on this. She doesn't want to do impeachment for political reasons. But, you know, if we wake up Thursday morning and we read something that, and there is something that is so wrong that the pressure from the left builds, um, then they may move. And this could be a convenient middle ground for the speaker to say, I have no intention of going through the full impeachment process, but I need to see the grand jury. So if it means opening impeachment, just for the sake of it, if it, you know, if you're placing bets, that's where my money would be. But everyone's going to have to read. And, and you know, someone wrote today, and I think it's a, sm- a smart thing. We shouldn't call it the Mueller report. 
we should call it the redacted Mueller report because you don't know what's in the Mueller report until you've read the whole report. So put on your strategist hat for a minute, Matt. What do you think of the Democrats' strategy so far? So I think it's basically right. I suspect they don't know what the end game yet is, but I don't think they could know what the end game is. I think their strategy has to be to just push forward, ask as many questions as possible, push for as much information as possible, and then let two things guide what you do when you get that information. One is how serious the information you get is, how how much wrongdoing, if any, it shows on the part of the president or others. And then two, what that does to public opinion is kind of the point Joe is making. If that swings public opinion significantly, then you maybe go a little further in, in what you were planning. But I think right now they have to just keep pushing for information. And and that means not just the report, uh, not just the uh, the redacted material, but all of the underlying information. Uh, you know, the, the FBI set this new precedent with the, with the Clinton investigation where within two months of it being closed – Comey had turned over basically the entire investigative file to Congress. There's no reason they shouldn't do that here either. And so they have to push for that. And then they have to make, do, do their own witnesses interviews and hold hearings. And then you see where it goes. Is the nature of the investigation as a counterintelligence investigation not the exact reason why it would be different? No, I think it turned, I mean, it, it was a counterintelligence investigation that was also a criminal investigation. Sometimes the line between those gets pretty blurry. And I think the line between it uh, is blurry here, especially with re, 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 respect to the obstruction piece, which wasn't really a counterintelligence question. Uh, I think there there may be pieces of it that have to be kept quiet and brief just to the intelligence committee, but I bet m- the vast majority of it, no. So assume for a second the administration digs in and does not want to be helpful. Who do we expect to see going up to the Hill to testify before uh, judiciary? And what restrictions will we I mean, what can Mueller say? Can they subpoena all the people that testified before the grand jury and and just ask them questions, open-ended questions. What What's that going to look and feel like? They can subpoena anyone they want, including inside the government. Um, the people that don't work for the government, it's much easier to get access to their testimony. They don't have any of the privileges that administrations claim to, to avoid testimony, um, especially people that have never gone inside the government. So I would think if you want to pick the most spectacular witnesses, Don, Donald Trump Jr. has no privilege to avoid testifying. Oh, well, other than the Fifth Amendment, he can can invoke his Fifth Amendment right to not testify. That would be something. I think you could see Congress asked to talk to Mueller, maybe asked to talk to some of Mueller's other investigators. You could ask to talk to Don McGahn. And there's this interesting thing where – so if you're a current Justice Department employee or you're a current White House employee, the Justice Department of the White House can prevent you from testifying. They just order you not to go and you're supposed to follow that order or resign. If you've left the White House, if you've left the Department of Justice, they can't block you from testifying. Now, they can tell you this is DOJ information and we don't want you to testify to it. And you say, well, I got a subpoena. I'm going up to talk. There's nothing they can do to block you. So it's this interesting question. I don't, I can't, I don't see Mueller doing that. That's not the type of guy he is. And because he's not that way, probably a lot of his investigators aren't. But if you ever wonder if it all goes really bad for the president, it's because people that worked in the White House, their incentives change and they decide – they don't want to protect him. And they, you know, Don McGahn, who spent 30 hours with Mueller's team, decides, you know what, I'll talk about that to a House committee as well. So besides grand jury, 60 material, what can't Congress see? So the only other piece of information that I think they can't see and where I think Barr has a legitimate point is material that relates to ongoing investigations. If DOJ is conducting an investigation that spun off of Mueller's report, that that should stay quiet until that investigation is done. Can they see the means and methods of intelligence collection and that kind of 
That was one of the bars yeah, four they, categories. They can not probably not everybody in Congress, depending on what it is. But everyone in Congress has a clearance, and certainly there's nothing the government is doing or knows that the the Intelligence Committee can't see or the Gang of Eight. Right. So, what's your gut theory on why Mueller left obstruction open? I think he wanted that question to be dealt with by Congress. And I think the question for me is, does he spell that out explicitly in yeah. the report or not? Uh, I think if you're Mueller, you look at, at the department's uh, sitting opinion that uh, or opinion that a sitting president can't be indicted. And because of that, there's no reason for you to decide that question because you can't indict him anyway. Lawyers at DOJ don't typically decide questions that are meaningless. Just for and fun. So just for fun. They just – especially very weighty legal questions. So I think he, he – most likely thought that was a question for Congress to decide. And the question will be how explicit he is in articulating that, what grounds he uses for not making that decision. Yeah, and I can almost guarantee you what he didn't say is I expect the attorney general to make this determination because as much as Barr's uh, press person was spinning about – they were surprised that Mueller didn't make this decision. They, they were briefed about it three weeks before. If Mueller had said either in the report – or orally to the attorney general that I'm leaving this decision to you, you can bet DOJ would have told us about oh, that by now. And it would have been in the letter. <laughs> it would have been in the it letter. That's been, right. It would have been in the letter, That's right. definitely, yeah. So just a couple of um, odds and ends, but I, I'd love your opinion on it. Why, why didn't Mueller issue a subpoena for testimony, one? And what's the timeline and peril for the president uh, from SDNY? And SDNY being an umbrella yeah. for all the others. Yeah. So I think with respect to Mueller, I, uh, I hope we find out in the report why. I hope he mentions that. But I, my suspicion has been he just didn't want to drag that out for a, a year, a year and a half, which the, the White House could easily do. You could tie this up in court and it would, be, it would go on forever. And as long as it was ongoing, you couldn't finish this investigation. And so he decided, look, I want his testimony. I need his testimony. In the end, is he going to be that useful? We know he's going to come in here and lie to me. Uh, um, and so he just he just decided it wasn't worth it, given that it would just prolong the investigation. I do think they wanted to bring it to a close within two years. And that's, that is always the card the White House holds in investigations and in congressional investigations, too. Is that even when the law is on the side of the investigating authority, the White House can drag things out forever. And your hope is by the time you ever are forced to provide the testimony of the documents, you've been resisting, the political salience of the issue is long since gone. What was the second question? SDNY. SDNY, right. SDNY. So look, I've always thought that the, the Mueller probe held the most political peril for the president because of the nature of the issue. But the SDNY probe held the most legal peril in that the Justice Department basically has already said he committed a crime and they haven't charged him with that. But I suspect if he was Senator Trump, he would probably be under indictment right now for the campaign finance scheme. And we know they're now looking at a bunch of other things. And let's just talk about the campaign finance probe. Before it's over, Alan Weisselberg and the Trump organization both have criminal liability and probably – maybe Weisselberg gets out of it somehow. But I don't see how the Trump organization doesn't plead guilty – to a campaign finance crime or get indicted over it. And I think when the president leaves office, he's got a very good chance of being indicted just on what we know already, let alone the other pieces they're investigating. The, the 
presidential immunity is the best thing he has going for him from a legal standpoint. Staying in office. Staying in office. Getting yeah. a second Staying, term. Absolutely. And, re- and, let, and letting the statute yeah, of limitations yeah. run. Yeah. Re-elect re- me to keep me out of jail. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's a slogan. You should put him on that slogan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it fits on a bumper sticker, but, you know. Right. Yeah. So I noticed you tweeted that if you could uh, search for one word, uh, you knew what that one word is. But I'm going to broaden. Give us three words you could search. Pardons. That's the one I, I mentioned on Twitter. Um, we've, I think the pardons are the piece we know the least about. We know that the president's lawyer, John Dow, dangled pardons to counsel for Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort. That even under, under Bill Barr's definition of obstruction of justice, that's a crime um, if he was doing it to, to try to silence a witness. So I really want to find out what they, what they investigate about pardons. McGahn? Is another because um, because of the thirty hours of testimony he provided, he I think would be the most interesting witness for all of the obstructive acts: firing Comey, trying to fire Mueller, the Flynn uh, issue. He's witness number one, and then Junior for obvious reasons. <laughs> just for fun, <laughs> just for fun, just, right? just for fun, because we all we we all want we we all want to know about Junior. Well, we will we will know soon enough, Matt. Thank you for talking to us before the report comes out. We might come knock on your door once we all get a chance to read it and get get your insightful analysis. Oh, thanks, it was a lot of fun. At the end of the show, we always like to talk to Joe about what's on his mind today. And first up, want to talk about White House press strategy. Attorney General Barr gave the White House a gift, maybe you could call it that, by publicizing when the report would be released Thursday morning. And that seems to have spun the comms department in the White House into a bit of a tailspin. But what do you think's going on inside that house right now? Yeah, it's really hard to know because they have an unusual comms department. You know, I, I don't think they're particularly professional, uh, but it's they have an unusual candidate, you know, and you know, unusual president, and the comms team reflects that. This has moved in waves. Uh, the president, for a year and a half, called it a witch hunt, and Bob Mueller and the angry Democrats. Which, by the way, if I ever form a band, it's going to be. Bob, Bob Mueller and the angry, and the angry Democrats. Uh, I need to learn to play an instrument first, but that's, let's put that aside. Uh, but, you know, just really trashing it, you know, as a, and trying to delegitimize it. And then Barr proceeded to give the gift to the president, of which I think they overreacted. I think claiming total exoneration gave the press no place to go but to look for any example where it wasn't total exoneration. So I think they're stuck right now. The president has been tweeting, and he's the main communicator here. I mean, whether whether there's strategy behind it or it's just whatever comes out of his you know fingers uh, via a tweet, has gone back to heavy criticism trying to delegitimize uh, the report. If I was in the White House right now and I knew the report was going to be somewhat benign, I'd be doing exactly that. So basically raising fear so that the bar is lowered and it's easier to get over the bar. I just don't think the people who are doing the strategy have the information they need, nor do they have control of the president's voice. So my guess is they are scrambling around and doing it the same way they've done every one of these crises, which is let's let it happen. Let's see what the president tweets. And then whatever he tweets, that's our line. That's crazy communication strategy. But I think that's where we are. That's a good point. And since last fall, we've been hearing from the Trump camp about a possible rebuttal. And we don't know how long that 
would could should be 80 pages, 200 pages. There have been rumors. How does the team now kind of create this rebuttal message and communication strategy to something that the president has already claimed totally exonerates him? Well, that's tough. If he didn't do anything wrong, why do you need to rebut it? I don't think that this report from, you know, Rudy Giuliani and, you know, and that's another band name, you know, Rudy Giuliani and the, the, the leakers. I, I think that most of this has played out in public. I view this will be a purely political document and primarily just to give content to the Fox Newses of the world, the Daily Callers, the Infowars. They will want something that they can put up on screen and say, official White House response. So I think that's the sole purpose of that. I don't think it's going to move the needle much with either the mainstream press or the public. All right. So let's talk politics a bit more. Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, announced that he is going to challenge President Trump for the nominee for president today. You know Bill Weld. I do know Bill Weld. Um, And uh, I'll start the story by saying that I really think he wants this job. Uh, And I think it's great that uh, there's going to be a challenger. I hope there will be others. But Bill Weld, um, a, a former governor, Republican governor of Massachusetts, popular uh, in, in Massachusetts as a Republican, which is saying something, got appointed by President Clinton, a Democrat, to be the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. And he had been uh, somewhat out on the fringes of the party. He's a moderate and been critical of Newt Gingrich and the contract with America. So he gets appointed and uh, I get assigned to handle him, you know, to go through the process. And we're very clear on what our talking points are. And we go to an interview and I brief him up and say, Governor, this is what we'd like you to say. He goes, I got it. I got it. Goes into the interview, says just the opposite. I walk out and say, Governor, what happened? He goes, oh, I'll be better next time. We go to the second interview. Same thing happens. And I'm like, Governor, what happened? He goes, ah, you know, don't, don't worry. We go to the third interview. Same thing happens. And I walk out and say, Governor, we, we've got to talk. You know, you, you are doing exactly the opposite of what we agreed to. And, and, and he said, well, let me tell you a little secret. I don't want the job. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? You don't want the job. We just nominated you. And he goes, he said, I, I'm trying to send a message to my party that we're losing our soul. And this is my platform. I'm not going to be confirmed. I'm going to make it impossible to be confirmed, but I I will have delivered a message to my party. And from that point on, we were the best of friends because it is easy to write outrageous talking points. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good story. All right. So the third topic before we let you go combines two things you love, politics and golf. And as a good Georgian, I was watching Masters and saw Tiger make a huge come back in his career and win. And today the president said that he is going to give Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom. What do you think about that? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that um, since yesterday. So first off, I watched yesterday. I am a huge fan of watching Tiger Woods play golf. It's just I, he is Michael Jordan. Uh, he is one of a generation or, or perhaps the greatest uh, I'm a, a New York Jets fan, so I'm not going to say Tom Brady, but it's it's that. And I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed watching it yesterday, particularly as, you know, someone who's older, just to watch what he would done. When I saw Trump's tweet, it disturbed me that all of a sudden he's talking about a Medal of Freedom because that's really reserved for exemplary lifetime achievement 
you know, uh, as an American, people have really contributed. And my first reaction, I started typing out a tweet saying he doesn't deserve the Medal of Freedom. And something made me stop. And I've spent the rest of the day thinking about it. And it struck me that trying to find moral clarity is really hard. This is a guy who made a lot of mistakes, who led a life that wasn't exemplary. On the other hand, if you talk to African-Americans, they look at it a lot different than white me, which is here's a guy who knocked down barrier after barrier after barrier and changed people's lives. Not that they were going to go play golf, but they saw in Tiger Woods someone who said, oh, I can do, if he can do that, I can do whatever I want to do. And then you look at the um, you know, the so-called comeback and this sort of determination and grit um, that were involved in it, there is a lot there. And it just sort of struck me that this is, it's its not clear morally, but at the, you know, I sort of came to at the end of the day thinking that, yeah, maybe he should, you know, get that medal put around. And all of this came at the same time as I was reading something out of, you know, Trump in Minnesota, because there is such a thing as moral clarity. Michelle Bachman, the former uh, member of Congress from Minnesota, was introducing Donald Trump today. And she said, he is the most godly president we've had, the most biblical. And I remember thinking, boy, I'm really wrestling with this Tiger Woods thing. And I see that and I think there is more clarity because she's full of shit. I mean, she's absolutely full of shit. I don't remember anything in the Bible about sleeping with porn stars, paying off porn stars, three marriages, 21 credible sexual assault. We live in this world where people try to confuse you and make you think up is down and in is out and black is white. I don't, I don't know why these two things came together in my mind, but the Tiger Woods thing is th something that we should wrestle with. We should figure out, does he deserve this thing? And it's a great debate to have and everybody should be in it. And the Michelle Bachman stuff, you know, there's only so much owls in Wonderland shit we can take. There's a tweet that came from an individual named Darren Sands that talks about Tiger that I want to read and I think kind of sums up part of your point and, and gives us something that's a little hopeful. Tiger is a lot like America. He's awful. He's awesome. He's got addictions. He's thrilled us, embarrassed us. He's lied. He's cheated. He's the best ever, and he's all of ours, whether we like it or not. There was little faith he could be fixed, but there was faith, and it worked. Exactly. It's much better than I could say it, but we've got to stop the other stuff. We've got to stop saying that Donald Trump is biblical because, again, I, I, just, I want to go get that, – that was in a different section of the library, that Bible, for, I guess, adults only, not for kids. Everybody go home and check their Bibles. Uh, all right, Joe, we always enjoy hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, we want to thank our friends and partners at The Hangar Studios. Since we launched, Words Matter has been recorded and produced by Jennifer Ho, Chad Dugatz, and the entire Hangar Studios team. They're total pros. The Hangar Studios will help you find your voice, find your audience, and deliver that top-notch audio quality needed for success in the podcast world. If you have a podcast you're trying to get off the ground, go to www.thehangerstudios.com and book a session. Thanks to Jennifer Chad and the entire team, we've been able to get our podcast off the ground with people we love working with. That's www.thehangerstudios.com. The Hanger Studios speak freely. Words Matter will be back next week, and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. 
Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.